I don't know about you guys, but um, I wonder whether you've ever noticed when you're speaking to someone and you're really wanting to get a point across that you often find yourself repeating uh, a common phrase that you use all the time. You know, you're there in the conversation, you've got something really important to, to say to this person that you're speaking to, and for some strange reason, they're not listening to you. You know, they're not listening to this important point that you're trying to make. And so you find yourself repeating certain things to try and emphasize the point. I myself do this all the time. If any of you know me well, you'll know that I often repeat a phrase when I'm speaking to people, which is, to be honest. Clayton's often said to me, you know, you say that a lot, Adam. But the reason I say it is because I'm trying to make a point to you. So next time you know that I'm saying that, I would like you to listen to me, please. <laughs> but um, I bring this up because the Apostle Paul has been doing a similar thing in this letter to 2 Corinthians. Over the last five chapters or so, he's begun to bring up a common theme. He's begun to say certain phrases uh, more than once. Uh, and the theme that he's bringing up and the phrase that he's bringing up is that he feels that he has to boast in his ministry or he feels that he has to commend his ministry. He did that in chapter 1, verse 12, and he did that in chapter 3, verse 1. And on each occasion, what he was doing was he was answering a specific accusation that was being made against him in the church at Corinth. In chapter 1, when I taught, he was answering the general accusation that he wasn't really a real leader. And then in chapter 3, we saw a few weeks ago that he was answering the accusation that he wasn't a real leader because he didn't have those letters of recommendation. And so as we pick it up in verse 12... We read again, it says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. So I want you to notice that he's again bringing up this theme of commending his ministry. But notice it's not going to be him that does the commending this time. It's actually going to be the Corinthian believers and so right from the outset, we can probably, well, I would say we can definitely make the suggestion that what Paul's going to do in this text is, is he's going to answer another accusation that's being made against him in the Corinthian church. And if you drop down to verse 14, we see what that accusation was about. It says there in verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judged us that if one died for all, then all died. And so I want you to notice that what Paul does in verse 14 is he brings up the truth of the cross of Christ. He's speaking there when he says that if one died for all, he's talking about Jesus' death there. And so allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, what was happening in the Corinthian church was that he was being accused... Paul was being accused about his teaching on the cross of Christ. This is what was happening. This was the kind of atmosphere that he was facing in the Corinthian church. 
Later on, we'll see in chapter 11 that Paul says that the false teachers that were rising up in the Corinthian church, they weren't really believers. They weren't preaching the real gospel. They weren't preaching the real Jesus. They weren't even preaching via the Holy Spirit. And this was the kind of atmosphere that he was facing. And so we're going to see today that Paul is going to answer this accusation about his teaching about the cross. But why does he do it here? Why is he doing it here at this part of the letter? Well, if you remember, over the last two weeks when John's been teaching, he's been teaching us about the fact of the wonderful blessings of being in the new covenant. Two weeks ago, he spoke about the fact that we have this treasure within earthen vessels. We actually have the presence of Jesus in us, this wonderful treasure. And then a week ago, John was teaching us about the fact that because we have this treasure within us, heaven is not chance for us, it's reality. We are going to be there one day because of what Jesus has done for us. But what is it that allows us to enter into the new covenant? It is the cross of Jesus Christ when Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And Paul knew that if there was accusations going around the church about his teaching about Jesus' death, that it potentially might stumble people in actually coming to Jesus in the first place, and it might stumble believers in growing in their relationship with Christ. So this is a very, very serious issue. And Paul feels compelled here to give us, obviously the Corinthian believers as well, a doctrinal statement about the death of Jesus Christ. This is what he's going to do. Now, I want to speak about what's motivating him to do this. And we see this at the beginning of verse 14, because listen, it says, for the love of Christ compels us. It was the same love that took Jesus to the cross, the agape love of Christ, which is what the word love there means, that is compelling Paul to give this doctrinal statement. And he's doing that because something very serious is at stake here. The very love of God is at stake. Because I don't know if you know this, but if you have the wrong view of Jesus' death at the cross, you have the wrong view about the love of God. It's really serious. If you don't understand the cross of Christ, you will not understand the love of God. I mean, it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You cannot get a better demonstration of the love of God other than the cross. It's at the cross that you see the love of God in its entirety. And if the, if the cross is, is different to what the Bible says in any way, you will misunderstand the love of God. And God takes that very seriously. God takes it extremely seriously when someone is misrepresenting his love, because God is love. And God's desire for human beings is for us to know him and for us to know his love and grow in his love every single day. Hallelujah. What an amazing truth that is, that we can know the God who is love. 
We don't have to look at things in the world for love. We have love here right now. His name is Jesus. And God takes it seriously when that is being maligned. And we should be encouraged by this because what this says to me is that we can um, have the assurance that if there's anything in our life that is misrepresenting the cross or misrepresenting the love of God, God wants to sort that out. If there's anything in this church that's misrepresenting the cross or the love of God, God wants to sort that out. And that should encourage us. He doesn't leave us in the lurch. He doesn't leave us in confusion. He wants us to know his love. And this is what's motivating Paul in this text today. And so we're going to see three things about, I would say, defending the cross of Christ in this text. The first thing we're going to see in verse 12 is that we defend the cross of Christ when we realize that we all have an involvement in that. We're going to see in verse 13 that we defend the cross of Christ when we do not allow any accusation against it to take root in our fellowships. And then in verses 14 to the end of the chapter, we're going to see that we defend the cross of Christ when we glory in the wonderful reality of it. So let's deal with those things now. So let's start with verse 12. So the thing I want you to see in verse 12 is again that Paul is not, he is not going to commend himself this time. In the previous two times in the, chapter, in, in the chapters before, he was commending himself. But he's not the one that's doing it here. He's saying, you guys are going to do this. You are going to have the opportunity to boast on our behalf so that you can have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. He's saying, look, you guys are involved in this. There's an accusation going around your church about my teaching on the cross of Christ. You have an involvement to deal with that. Why is that? Well, because, listen, this accusation is not a personal thing against Paul. This is an accusation against the very fabric of Christianity. This is an accusation against the very purpose and way that God saves human beings. This is an accusation against the most important act in the history of men. That the whole of the Old Testament looks forward to, that in a sense the whole of the New Testament looks back to, and it's the event that pierces history. Because everything before Christ is BC and everything afterwards is AD. This is a big accusation against Christianity itself. And we, he's saying, have an involvement in dealing with that. Jude speaks about this in his epistle in verse 3, when he said there, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to you. And what Jude is speaking about here is this reality that Jesus came to the earth, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he gave his spirit to the, to the, the whole of mankind, the apostles brought out their doctrine, and it ended up with the New Testament. And that was finally delivered to the saints. It doesn't change. It's the same for all generations, all societies, all countries, it's always the truth. It never is not the truth. 
Whether someone disagrees with it, whether someone says, oh, that's a load of rubbish, it doesn't matter. It is the truth. And it's been delivered to us once and for all, and it is worthy to defend, brothers and sisters. Because, listen, when we don't defend the cross of Christ, terrible things happen. I've said it here just a few moments ago, that people will be stumbled. They will not come to Jesus. That the church will suffer. I mean, you just have to look over the last 2,000 years at church history, and we'll just pick up a couple of examples. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are not in the church, but they believe that when Jesus died, it wasn't God dying. That is an erroneous view of the cross. And because of that, people who are Jehovah's Witnesses are not saved. Another example is the Roman Catholic Church. Many Roman Catholics are are naive to the actual doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, but essentially what they believe is is that when they're doing Mass, they are re-sacrificing Christ. That is an erroneous view of the cross of Christ. Hebrews says that Jesus had to die once, not over and over and over again. And many people, if not all people in the Roman Catholic Church, are not saved. This is the kind of effect when we get the cross of Christ wrong. That is why it's worthy to contend for and defend. Now, brothers and sisters, we live in a generation and a society where the need to defend Jesus and the cross is getting more and more real every day. We no longer live in a Christian Great Britain. We live in a post-Christian Great Britain. We can no longer rely on the average Joe walking down the street having some knowledge about God or about Jesus or about sin or about salvation. That just is not there anymore. And the attacks against the cross of Christ are getting more and more each day. It's getting ridiculed more and more each day. And I believe that the temptation for us in this generation as believers is what it speaks in Proverbs 28, 12, where it says, When the righteous rejoice, there is great glory, but when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. There is a temptation for us in this generation, listen, because the wicked are getting more and more power and society is getting worse and worse morally, we as Christians have the temptation to hide ourselves and not say anything about it. I mean, has anyone had that temptation before to just keep quiet? I certainly have. But that we should take the advice of Solomon again in Proverbs, in Proverbs 24, 19 to 20, where he says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, for there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Hallelujah. The wickedness that's grown in Great Britain is going to be put out. So therefore, let us be brave and courageous, brothers and sisters, and defend earnestly the cross of Christ. Because God still wants to work in the UK. God hasn't given up on the UK. He still wants to do a work. He still wants to save people. He still wants to grow the church of Jesus Christ in this land. And part of that is that we must contend earnestly for the very act that makes us Christians. Brothers and sisters, we defend the cross of Christ when we realize that we all have an involvement. So he goes on in verse 13, 
And he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Now, in this verse, this is a, this is a slightly strange verse. The first thing I want you to notice about this is he is describing two extremes of mental state in this verse. Where he says, we are beside ourselves, that's really in the Greek a word that means to be insane. Um, you know, that you could be admitted into a mental hospital for. That's what that word means. And then when it says that we are of sound mind, that's basically the opposite of being insane. It's being, you could say, normal in your mental state. And I believe that Paul is using this here to be sarcastic. He's using this to sort of say, well, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God, or if we are sound mind, it's for you. He's being sarcastic to basically show us that the nature of the accusation that was being made against him was that he was being inconsistent. And he's using this sarcasm here to basically say, look, it's ridiculous what these people are saying. Well, what was happening in the Corinthian church is that the false teachers were saying of Paul, well, he says to this person this one thing about the cross of Christ, but then he says to this other person this other thing. They were accusing him of being inconsistent. And brothers and sisters, this is a very key way that the devil will split churches, divide churches. If he can bring an accusation against the leadership that they are inconsistent in their speech, that is potentially going to cause massive problems. And when someone does that, when someone brings an accusation against a leader, when they say that leader is inconsistent in what they're preaching, that in its nature is demonic. And it's demonic because if you remember when Jesus spoke in the Gospels, he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And what was Jesus saying there? He was saying, look, be consistent with what comes out of your mouth because anything else is of the devil. Why is it of the devil? Well, because if you're not consistent with your speech, no one will trust you. And if no one trusts you as a leader, then the church is going to be, get weaker and weaker and become less fruitful and less fruitful. And this is what the devil does in fellowships. Now, the question is, would you know what to do if someone did that here in Servants Church? So, for example, let's, let's, let's deal with an example to illustrate this. If someone comes up to you after the service and says, hey, you know, I, I want to talk to you about Adam. You know, Adam, I've heard him say that when Jesus died at the cross, he died for all sin. But I've also, I've also heard him say that when Jesus died at the cross, he wasn't really dying for sin at all. That's a pretty serious accusation to make. And the first thing I would say to you is that you should take that seriously. But the second thing is, is that if someone does that to you in this fellowship, the first thing that I'd encourage you to do is what it says in 1 Timothy 5.19, where it says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So if someone comes up to you in the fellowship and accuses me or John of inconsistency 
in our doctrine or our preaching, the first thing you must do, this is very important, is do not receive it. What that means is don't, not to not take it seriously, but don't take it into your heart. Don't believe it. Don't assume that that is correct. You need to go away and pray about it and then encourage that person, according to Matthew chapter 18, I think, to come and speak to me about it or to John and to have it out in the open. And then if John or myself says, that's absolutely crazy, which we obviously would do because we believe that when Jesus died at the cross, he died for all sin. I hope that's correct, John. Amen. <laughs> it, is, it is correct, yes. But you, well, if that happens, if we say that, that's rubbish, you know, that's, I, I think I need to go and talk to that person, what you need to do is just let go of that accusation. Just let it go. Obviously, if we're lying, I believe that the Spirit would bring, as it says here in 1 Timothy 5.19, more witnesses, and it would be dealt with. But do you know what you've done in dealing with that the proper way? You have not allowed an accusation to take root in the church, to take root within our fellowship about the teaching of the cross of Christ. And that's really important because it means that the church will continue onwards and be fruitful. But the problem, I have to say, with not most Christians, but a large majority of Christians, is that when someone comes up to them and accuses leadership or gossips about people in the church, you know what most Christians do? They don't do anything about it. They just kind of let it sink in and just kind of let it fester there. And that often can breed anger, it can breed bitterness, it can breed unforgiveness. And according to Ephesians 4, if we do that, brothers and sisters, we will grieve the Spirit and potentially stop the Spirit from working in our fellowship. So let's not be those kinds of Christians. Let us deal with things in wisdom. Let us pray about these things. Let us be biblical in how we respond to this kind of thing, because this will happen. As we grow as a church, as we become more fruitful, the devil is going to want to stop the work that Jesus is doing in this fellowship. And one of the key ways is by accusing leadership of inconsistency. So let us, let us not do that. So anyway, moving, moving on into verses 14 to 21. This really is an amazing bit of scripture. And I do feel honoured to be able to teach on it, to be honest, because it, 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 it's just incredible what is being written here. But what Paul is doing in this section is he's talking about the redemptive aspect of the cross when Jesus died. In verses 14 to the end of verse 17, he, he's, he's going to talk about the enabling aspect of the cross, or you could say the grace of enablement that the cross brings. And then in verses 18 to 21, he talks about the reconciliatory aspect of the cross and the way that God, in his grace, has reconciled us through the cross of Jesus Christ. So let us deal with that first section first, from verses 14 to 17. Now we see in this verse, first verse, in verse 14, that, that Paul's talking about the cross that enables in that statement where it says, that if one died for all, then all died. Now that 
statement is slightly ambiguous because in one sense it's very easy to understand, but in another sense it's not easy to understand. Where it says there that if one died for all, that's pretty obvious what it's speaking about. It's speaking about Jesus dying on the cross, and I think we can all accept that that is not a very difficult thing to understand. But then he says, then all died. Well, what does that mean? Certainly it doesn't mean that when Jesus died on the cross that everyone around him died physically, because that obviously wasn't the case. But what is he saying here? Well, I believe that what he is saying here in this very small, compact statement is really a a small version of what he speaks of in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. And I'll just read those verses to you now. It says there, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now what Paul's doing at the beginning of Romans 6 is, if you remember in Romans 5, he's been speaking about the wonderful glory of grace. That grace abounds over sin. And he realises as he's writing this at the end of chapter 5 that some people might take advantage of that and say, well, if that's the case, if God's grace is so amazing and it abounds over sin, why don't we just carry on in sin? Why don't we just live a sinful life? And Paul says, absolutely not. That is definitely not what God calls us to. And then he goes on in the rest of those verses to basically correspond with what he says in this chapter by saying that, We cannot do that because when Jesus died at the cross, listen, he died to potentially give every man and woman a new life. He died to potentially allow every man and woman to be associated with his death and with his resurrection and to have a new life. Notice in Romans 6, he's only speaking to Christians though. So even though Jesus did die for all people at the cross in this sense, the truth of it is only applied to Christians. And it's only applied to Christians because you have to enter into that truth by faith. And this is exactly what he's saying in this verse, in verse 14. When he says, if one died for all, okay, well, Jesus died for all to give everyone the the potential to have this new life. And where it says then all died, the most important thing for you to see here is that when he says died there, the way that's written in the Greek, it means that if someone's going to die, they have to do something active to enter into it. And that is faith. You have to actively have faith in what Jesus did to enter into that reality of having a new life. But it's available for all. Every person can enter into it. It's a bit like a contract. When Jesus was at the cross, when he was dying, when he was giving that opportunity for every man and woman to have a new life, he was writing the contract. But what does anyone who enters into into a contract have to do? They have to sign it. And we sign the contract that Jesus offers us at the cross through faith. 
And this is what he's saying in that statement there in verse 14. And then he goes on in verse 15 to show us what this new life is like. He says there, And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And so he's saying here, look, if someone puts their faith in Christ, they've become alive. They are no longer dead in their sins and transgressions. They've come to life and they live this life now not for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This life, this new life that Jesus gives people is a life that's not dictated by self. It's not dictated to by sin. It's a life that is dominated by love, love for God and love for other people. This is the life that he's speaking of there in verse 15. And how does this work? How do we live out this new life on a daily basis? Well, I'm going to, again, explain some basic theology, but it's always good to do that. When you are not saved, you have what is residing in your heart called the law of sin. That means that you are a sinner by nature. You have a propensity to sin all the time. You cannot please God. You cannot do anything really that is good for God. That's just what you are as a sinner. But when you respond to the gospel and you're born again, the Spirit comes to take residence in your heart and you no longer have the law of sin just there anymore. You have the law of the Spirit. And the Spirit begins to work in your heart to give you new desires, to give you new emotions, to give you a new mind. And you begin to be able to please God. You begin to be able to do what God would want you to do in your life. But guess what? Even though that's the case, that law of sin is still there. Every day in the flesh. Knocking. Hello, I'm still here. Why don't you come and live for me? That's what happens. I mean, we've all faced that battle, haven't we? Every day, I think everyone in here would be honest that we struggle with temptation to sin. We struggle with the desire to sin. That is the law of sin still there, trying to have your attention, wanting to be dominant in your heart. But what you must do when that happens is, by faith, believe what Jesus has already done for you. You must, by faith, deny that old man. Deny that old sinful self because he was crucified with Jesus at the cross. He no longer has to dominate you. It doesn't have to be the case anymore. And you must, by faith, receive that you are a new person in Christ. We'll come on to that in a moment. But you're a new man. You're a new woman. You don't have to live dominated by sin. You can live dominated by the Spirit. And this is how it works. And it's a daily thing. And it will happen every single day until you see Jesus face to face. You are never going to get to a place, brother and sister, where you're perfect. Every single day of your life here, you are going to struggle with sin because you live in a sinful body. But hallelujah, you don't have to be enslaved to it anymore. You were once enslaved to your sin. You had no choice in the matter, really. But now you have a choice. You can say no to sin and live for God. What an incredible truth that is. That excites me. It really gets my heart going. I want to live like that every day. I want to live led by the Spirit every single day and live a life that pleases the one who went to the cross to die for me and who rose again from the dead for me and for every single 
one of you in here. Isn't it great news, brothers and sisters, that you don't have to be enslaved to sin anymore? Maybe there are some of you in here today who are struggling with a specific sin. You just have this habit to go back to this specific sin all the time. You're tempted to it all the time. You give in to it all the time. But I want to say to you, if you're in that place this morning, brother, sister, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't need a great emotional experience to be set free from sin. You don't need a specific pastor to pray for you or to listen to a specific ministry. You know what you really need to do? You need to ask God to give you the faith that Jesus has already done it for you. And that because of that, you can be free from sin. That is such amazing news. It's wonderful news. But the problem is, and this is why most Christians struggle with sin, is that even though they know that, they like their sin. That's the sobering thing about it. We know the truth of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We know that we can be free from sin, but because we like sin, we don't turn away from it. Let us not be that people, brothers and sisters. Let us be a people that is free from the enslavement of sin. Amen? So he goes on in verses um, 16 and 17. And this is where he's kind of beginning to deal with the accusation that's been made about this specific aspect of the cross of Christ. Because what was happening in the Corinthian church, I believe, was that they thought that the cross of Christ that Paul preached was too soft. And what I mean by that is, if you remember, the Corinthian church was a pretty carnal church. They were dealing with lots of sin within their midst. And if you remember in 1 Corinthians... When Paul wrote that book, he did write some pretty harsh words to them. But he was also very encouraging, wasn't he? He said, look, even though these problems are happening in your midst, you are still believers, you are still born again, you are still saved. And because of that, I believe that the false teachers were saying, you know, this this Paul, he teaches a bit of a soft cross, doesn't he? I mean, he's not really being that rebukish, is he, to you with regard to your sin? He's not really being that harsh to you, is he? He's not whipping you. Saying, you know, deal with that sin. Otherwise, you're, you know, something terrible is going to happen to you. He's not being harsh to them. He's being real with them, but he's also being real in the fact that they are saved, that they are the people of God. And the false teachers were accusing him of being too soft. And he tells us in verses 16 and 17 why he wasn't overly harsh to the Corinthian believers. He says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now notice he says in verse 16, therefore from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. And I believe that what he's saying there is he's saying that if someone is born again, if someone is a believer in Jesus Christ, Paul will not identify that person according to the flesh. He will acknowledge sin in that person's life and he will even call people to deal with sin in their life, but he will not identify someone by their flesh or by 
their sinful nature. And he he tells us why in the rest of verse 16, because he speaks of the example of Christ. He says, even though we have known Christ according to the to the fresh, yet now we, have, we know him thus no longer. And what he's saying there is, if you remember, Jesus was in heaven, he was in glory, and he decided to come away from that glory and come down to the sinful earth. He came from a place of, you could say, strength, and he did come to, to a place of weakness to a certain extent in becoming a human being. And he lived his life perfectly, empowered by the Spirit. He went to the cross, he rose again, and now he's gone back up to heaven. And in heaven now, he is in the glorious state again. He is ruling the universe, he is reigning at the right hand of the Father. But notice what Paul's doing. He's trying to get you to think about that Jesus was in a place of weakness, but now he's in a place of strength because he's in glory. And he then says, he basically applies that to believers in verse 17. He says, therefore... If anyone is in, is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. If you are a believer in here today, you no longer have to be in that place of, you could say, ultimate weakness because of your sin. Because the very presence of God is in you. And you are a new creation. The old things have passed away in Christ when he was at the cross and new things have come. And because of that, Paul says, I am not going to identify believers according to their sinful nature anymore. Because there is a greater reality about them now because they're born again. They are in Christ. They are a new creation. They've gone from a place of utter weakness where they could do nothing about their sin, and now they're in a a place empowered by the Spirit. Amen. This is what he's trying to get at. And he's saying, why on earth would I want to be really harsh to someone when they're already changed? They're already a new creation in Christ. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage their new creation. I'm going to acknowledge sin and call them to repent. But I'm going to trust that because the Spirit is in them, the Spirit's going to deal with it. So I don't have to be harsh. I personally believe that if you're counseling someone and you are dealing with a specific sin in their life, if you identify them in your heart according to that sin, you will grieve the Spirit. And you might stop the Spirit from working in that situation. What the person needs, listen, this is very important. If someone comes to you and wants counsel about a specific sin in their life, you must call them to repent. That's a biblical thing. That's absolutely correct. But you must not identify them according to that sin anymore. Because they're new in Christ. That is what they need to hear. They don't need to keep hearing about their sin once they've turned. They need to hear about who they are in Christ. Because that's what will ultimately bring them freedom. If you keep whipping someone about their sin, you will grieve the Spirit and they will not grow. But if you choose to call them to identify sin, repent, by faith believe who they are in Christ, they will grow. This is what he's saying. An amazing truth. It's a great thing to be a new creation in Christ. I am so thankful that God has made me a new creation. (laughs) If I was left the way I was when I was an unbeliever, man, I would be in a bad state right now. I certainly probably would not be married. I certainly probably would not have children. I may have mucked up my career. I may have been into all sorts of 
crazy things. But thank God I'm not. And I believe that's because of Jesus in me. I believe it's because of his promise that he's going to change me from the inside out. Yes, I have to cooperate with him in doing that, but I believe he's going to bring that to pass. And it's the same for every single one of you in here who's a believer today. You can trust that God is going to do this incredible work. Paul's saying to these, to these Corinthian believers, I'm, I'm not preaching a gospel that's half-hearted or soft. I'm preaching the full gospel. I'm preaching the gospel that says, yes, you're forgiven at the cross, but yes, you're changed at the cross as well. I'm preaching the full gospel. These false teachers are preaching the false gospel. Maybe you're in here today and you've heard a gospel that is not the full gospel. Maybe you're in here today and you have been told that, yes, your sins are forgiven, but you don't need to have a changed life. That is wrong. That is not the case. If you're truly born again, if you're truly saved, the Spirit will begin working in your life and changing you from the inside out. I mean, to, to acknowledge this, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And where it says holiness there, a better way to translate that, I believe, would be to just use the word sanctification. If you've believed in Jesus, you will have a changed life. If you, be, if you say you believe in Jesus, but you have no problem with sin, and you're still living in sin, then there's a real problem there. And if there's not sanctification in your life, the Scripture says you will not see the Lord. There must be a changed life with the full gospel. It doesn't mean that this change in us saves us. No, we're saved by faith. But because of that, God comes into our heart and he changes us from the inside out. And I'm so thankful that God doesn't do things in half measures. Are you, are you thankful about that in here this morning? God doesn't leave you half changed. He does it to the fullest. He's not given us a gospel which is half-hearted. He's given us the full redemptive work of the gospel in Jesus Christ. As it says in Philippians verse, chapter 1, verse 6, a very famous verse, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God does not do things in half measures. He does it to the full. And we should glory in that. By glorying in this truth that in being believers we are changed, do you know what we do? We defend the cross of Christ. Let us be that people, brothers and sisters. So moving on to the final section, in verses um, 18 to 19. I'm just going to read those again, because they're worthy to be read again. It says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading for us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now I think you notice as we go through those verses that the idea of reconciliation comes up at least 
five times in that little section. The Greek word that Paul is using for reconciliation there is a Greek word that basically describes the trade of money exchanges in the first century. A bit like the foreign exchange guys, you know when you go into Asda and you go and get some foreign currency. And these money exchanges were very, very common in the first century because there was a lot of you know, exchange of currencies in different towns and different cities. And Jesus himself had to cleanse the temple of the money exchanges in the Gospel of John. But the idea that Paul's getting here in the word reconciliation is that an exchange has to take place. An exchange has to take place to make enemies friends because that's what reconciliation means. It means you who are enemies becoming friends. And of course, the context that he's speaking of here is that human beings in their sinful state are enemies of God. They're enemies of God. This is clearly shown to us in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, where it says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity, or an enemy, against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Let's, let's get this really straight here. People who are not born again, they're not saved, God would say that they are his enemies. I know that doesn't sit very well with us. God wants them to be saved, but they are his enemies. One of the things that concerns me in the church is that one of the ways to try and get people to be evangelized is to kind of say, well, you're not really an enemy of God, God loves you, you know, and sort of fluff over sin. Jesus himself said that if you are not his, you are a child of wrath. Sobering stuff. But let's get it straight that if you're not born again in here, God says that you're his enemy, but he, he wants you to be saved. He loves you and he wants you to get right with him. But until that happens, you are his enemy. And because of that, reconciliation has to take place. For you to be a friend of God, you have to be reconciled to him. It has to, that has to be the case. There's no other way. You can't sort of creep into heaven with your good works as an enemy of God. There has to be a full and utter reconciliation between you, the sinner, and God. And he says here in these verses that that reconciliation comes through Jesus. When Jesus came to the earth, he came with that heart to bring reconciliation. To make the enemies of God his friends. That was what Jesus' intention was in coming to the earth. And it says here that the ultimate act of reconciliation occurred at the cross. In verse 21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is an absolutely amazing and incredible verse because what it's saying there is when it says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, what that means is, is that when Jesus came to the earth, he was not acquainted with sin. He didn't live in any way, any sin whatsoever. He was absolutely perfect. It doesn't mean that he didn't know about sin. Jesus spoke about sin a lot, but he was not acquainted with it. He wasn't a friend of sin. 
And when it says there that he allowed Jesus to be sin for us, it does not mean that Jesus became a sinner at the cross. That is not the case. Jesus did not become a sinner at the cross, but what happened at the cross is God allowed the debt of sin to be placed upon Christ, to be sin for us. As it says there, God did not um, impute our trespasses to us. He actually imputed it. He put it on Christ at the cross. Now, a good way to think about this is bank accounts. So here's Jesus, and Jesus, his bank account is always in the positive in terms of righteousness. He is a trillionaire, trillionaire. He's got trillions and trillions of pounds in his account because he's perfect, he's righteous. We, on the other hand, here are always in debt. We're always asking the bank for more loans because of our sin. We're in the negative all the time because in our nature, we are not righteous. But this is what happened at the cross. God took that debt of the whole of humanity and he put it on Christ. And Christ took the punishment, the judgment, and the wrath for that whole debt as he was there on the cross. An incredible thing. I believe he did that for every single human being. I don't believe he just did that for the elect. I say that because in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says... And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. When Jesus was at the cross, he did it for every single person. He was, in a sense, laying out the contract again of reconciliation, of being made right with God. But what does it say there? It says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That means that just because Jesus did the act of dying on the cross for us, it doesn't automatically mean that we are reconciled with God. There has to be another active act upon our part to enter into that reality. And we all know that that is faith. Once you put your faith in Christ, do you know what happens? The whole righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, given to you, in your account. I mean, just even saying that makes me smile. It's just an incredible thing. It really is. I mean, let's think about it. If you're in here today and you've put your faith in Christ, do you know that in terms of righteousness, you're a trillionaire now? Do you know that you cannot be any more righteous in God's eyes than what you are right now? Yes, I know that you struggle with sin. Yes, I know that sin is wrong in our lives. But because you've put your faith in Christ, you are right before God. I mean, that doesn't that excite you? That you are right with God? You cannot be any more right with God than you already are now? And it's simply because of faith. And because of the work that Jesus did for you on the cross. You are now a friend of God if you've put your faith in Christ. You're no longer an enemy. And this is what should motivate us to live lives of holiness for him and to tell people about Jesus. Not that we become, in a sense, more righteous and get a better standing before God, but because we have the perfect standing before God because of faith, that's what should motivate us to do those works.
That is what should enlighten our hearts every day and set us on fire. So in finishing up this message, what the Corinthian church was having to deal with was that these false teachers were basically saying that the cross that that Paul preached was not only soft, but it was easy. It was too easy. To them, they thought that being right with God just by faith, it just didn't seem right to them. Remember in verse 12, I think it was, they boasted in appearance, not in heart. These false teachers, they were boasting in what they could produce whether it is being religious or whether it is producing some powerful sign or wonder, what they boasted in is what they could do, plus some kind of belief in Jesus. But the cross of Jesus Christ doesn't allow that. The cross of Jesus Christ is easy for us in this sense, that we enter into the reality of it by faith, by a simple act of faith that carries on for your whole life. It's not by faith plus works. It's simply by faith. And in that sense, it's easy. But for Jesus, it wasn't easy. For Jesus, he had the whole debt of the sinfulness of the world placed upon his shoulders. So much so that he said at the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? Let that sink in. That for Jesus, he went through everything for you. So that you, in a sense with easiness, could become God's friend forever. And so if you're in here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, Jesus would say to you today that he's gone through everything for you. And he wants you to know him. He wants you to come to that place today where you're no longer an enemy but a friend. And it's simply by putting your faith in Christ.